The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. This may sound like an odd question, but could you tell us where we are? This is the Terek Nor Station, the center of authority for the Bajoran Sector. Center of authority? <laughs> Whose authority? The Alliance, of course. Take that one below, put him to work. Tell the supervisor to keep an eye on him. He won't know the rules. Another worker for you. A Terran who doesn't know the rules. Well, we'll see to it that he learns them. What's your designation? Bashir. Julian. Is that a joke? I don't know. Is it? <clears throat> no jokes. That's my rule of obedience number 14. Now, what's your designation? I don't have a designation. I don't have a designation, sir. Another rule of obedience. <laughs> I don't have a designation, sir. I don't have a designation, sir. Now, why is that? I don't know. And frankly, I don't even know what I'm doing here. You're here to process ore. Have you ever done that before? No, I haven't. Have you ever worked in the mines? No. Then what have you done? I've been practicing medicine. Did you forget rule of obedience number 14? It's not a joke. I'm a doctor. Well, doctor. Don't forget to scrub before you operate. <laughs> Good morning, London. It's Thursday, March 6, 2014. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join in on the conversation, or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Robert Vaughn and I were in Toronto just this past Tuesday, got back to London very early yesterday morning after having been there to see Ritu Parnabasu, analyst with the Ayn Rand Institute who spoke on healthcare in Canada at the University of Toronto. It was a great event and we'll be sharing it with you in the new, near future. Of course, Ritu was our guest on the show last week and it was a very interesting show. Robert now has a lot of video footage to edit and post online to Just Right's website. And in addition, Robert will be also video recording the third annual Israel Truth Week conference in Toronto on March 23rd, which will also become another Just Right project. And for those interested in knowing more about that, of course, that event's held by Mark Vandermas, who's the founder of Israel Truth Week and has been a guest on this show. And this uh, year's theme, I guess, is Truth Before Solutions, Safeguarding the Honor of the Jewish People. And that will be held Sunday, March 23rd at 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Lodzer Synagogue in, at 12 Heaton Street, North York in Toronto. Admission is free, and it includes a light lunch. Now, there's a deal. 
Seating is limited to 250, so register early if you check out their website at www.israeltruthweek.org. You can register online there. Now, today for the show, our general topics are going to be a little bit uh, disjointed in terms of the first and second half of the show. Last part of the program today, you want to talk about a creative debate on creationism I had earlier about a week ago, and also want to discuss civic citizen involvement on the local level. But the first half of our show was something that broke on Monday, of course, and that was when uh, the Soviets invaded the Ukraine in, uh, in, in, a, in a show of strength. And uh, actually, you know, I think what this turns out to be, a lot of people have asked me, well, what's going on in the Ukraine? And, you know, I really couldn't answer that question about a week ago, but I've done so much research lately. And, of course, I have a personal connection to this issue, which I'm going to discuss first, and that's my own personal connection to Ukraine. My mother's father, her name's Francis, my grandfather, whom I never met, his name was Maximilian Hillinger, and he was forcibly starved to death by the Russians a couple of years after World War II ended, and finally passed away of starvation on July 22, 1947, at age 43, in the town of in the town of Krivoy Rog, Russia, which sits right in the middle of the Ukraine. If you look at it on the map, you'll find it just east of Romania and north of the Black Sea and Crimea. You know, it's, it's spelled a number of ways, uh, K-R-I-V-O-Y and R-O-G, two separate words, or um, more of the Russian-sounding word, you know, K-R-I-V-O-J-R-O-G. And then there's another version that spells it with an O-I, so there's no real <laughs> correct spelling that I could find so, so far. So how did my grandfather end up getting starved to death by the Russians? Well, this goes back to a history, and I have to thank my sister Kathy uh, for doing this research way back when. Uh, back in 1979, she gave me uh, a copy of our family tree going back in a book form format with uh, maps, diagrams, charts, trees, and pictures and everything. And some of this is from her, and some of this is from what we know of history. So on Sunday afternoon, September 24th, 1944, just days after my own mother turned 16, Romanian soldiers and their Russian officers marched into the town of Alec, Hungary. That's uh, spelled E-L-E-K. On January 22nd, 1945, women between the ages 17 to 35 and men between the ages of 16 to 48 had to report to various stations that had been set up in town. They were told to bring warm clothing and enough food to last for three weeks. They were also told they had to work in sugar factories and clean uh, corn off the fields. Not quite two weeks later, and only months before the war would be officially declared over, on January 11, 1945, 1,000 civilians from the town of Alec were taken as prisoners aboard 40 remodeled freight cars to Krivoy Rog, Russia, for forced labor. They arrived there on February 22, 1945, in temperatures of 40 below zero Celsius. You can imagine what that feels like given our temperatures lately. Weeks later, in March of that year, the holdings of property owners back in Alec and, and the holdings of the rich were confiscated and divided, because after all, that's what communists do. They redistribute the wealth. By October, some of the c- civilians taken from Alec returned, to Russia, returned from Russia rather very gravely ill. And in April and May of 1946, while my grandfather was still a slave, forced to work for the Russians in Krivoy Rog, 
6,000 people of German ancestry in Ehrlich, Hungary, were expelled back to Germany in six transports. My parents were expelled from Hungary on the fifth transport that went to the town of Würzburg in Germany towards Redstadt, which is where they were, still were, when I was born in 1952. I was actually born in the town of Würzburg. And I have the unique position within my own family of being able to say that I'm the only person in the immediate family born in Germany, in a country that none of my other siblings or immediate family were born in. My sisters, daughter, grandchildren, cousins, and everyone subsequent is born and raised in Canada. My parents, of course, were born in Hungary, and I, for all intents and purposes, was not born but raised Canadian, since many of the folks exiled to Germany from Eilich and then came over here and ended up here right in London, Ontario, about oh, almost 700 of them, I think, around uh, in the early 1950s. So except for the first year or so of my life, I've been a Londoner ever since. Grew up a kind of a confused kid with three or, three or, three or more languages being spoken in the house, German, Eilich, Hungarian, English, and a bit of Romanian. So you can see that even before I was even old enough to talk, uh, my life had already been you know, immensely affected by World War II, notions of racism and nationalism, fascism and communism. And talk about lucking out, having been the first of the exiles to arrive in a relatively capitalist Canada. And in Canada, you know, in the pre-socialist days, especially in the 1950s, the country was a true land of opportunity for everyone. I imagine that there might be one or two of you thinking, well, okay, that explains why he's into this freedom thing, or that's why he's doing this thing and why he's picking on politicians. Uh, well, you might be surprised to learn that wasn't really my motivating factor, at least not at the beginning, though in retrospect it certainly has become a factor of that equation, because a fa motivating factor for me was having acquired the knowledge, the discovery of, I guess, what you could call a cure for this disease that ails civilizations, that disease being the forced collective. And how ironic and fitting that one, the one individual whose philosophy lighted the way on an understanding of all this should have come from Russia, Ayn Rand. And I suppose that if I was to, you know, really into ethnicity and nationalism or other forms of collective identifications as the premise of my philosophy in dealing with other people, I should probably hate her for being a Russian and having come from the same country that murdered my grandfather. But what happened to my grandfather was by no means an isolated incident, nor uncommon. Millions have endured similar experiences, and yet no clear answers to this dilemma have been discovered. I actually heard some London, local Londoners on talk shows who came from that area who apparently are, seem completely in the dark about the, the, the real deep history of why all of this was happening, let alone in the dark, you know, being in the dark for a solution other than the so-called magical vote, always looking towards this thing called democracy to solve all their problems. And that's where a lot of the problems begin. National Post columnist Ann Applebaum on February 8th, um, 2014, referred to mass starvation as the original WMD, weapon of mass destruction. In medieval Europe, she writes, starvation was a de facto consequence of a siege. An army would surround a castle or a walled town, prevent food from entering, and then wait. Sound familiar? In the 20th century, dictators used starvation, not just as a battle tactic, but also to murder people who did not fit into their vision of an ideal society. And, you know, before resorting to more industrial methods, 
Hitler used starvation to kill Jews. Nazi soldiers cut, shut them in ghettos, closed the doors, and shot children who tried to smuggle food through the sewers. Nowadays, quote, death by forced starvation, end quote, sounds like something from an old newsreel. But it is not, she writes. At this point, Applebaum points to Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad and adds another piece of history. Quote, Stalin used starvation to kill Ukrainian peasants. Soviet soldiers confiscated their grain, forcibly removed food from their larders and blocked roads so nothing could reach them. This is what my parents went through. During the Ukrainian famine of the early 1930s, starving people ate insects, leaves, and grass to stay alive. In Yarmouk, people are now eating cats, cactus, and grass to stay alive. Applebaum could have added, you know, all of the atrocities in the Mideast, Africa, China, and of course, the real true hell on earth today, North Korea. It never ends, and I think it never will end until we stop adhering to the collectivist ideas and philosophies that can do nothing but lead to these inevitable consequences. It will go on and on. Now, the West has changed a lot since my parents immigrated here, politically for the worse and towards less freedom, not more, and towards the forest collective, not away from it. The East has not, despite all appearances, those appearances being created mostly by the Western media and Western wealth, which floods the countries and gives them a lot of the, 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 the wealth that they have there. And the Western media is very preoccupied with, you know, outrageous expectations of democratic reform in these so deeply non-democratic parts of the world. Yes, today's Russia allows certain liberties that were not seen in the past, from the westernization of fashion and music to the treatment of protesters like Pussy Riot <laughs> and other groups like that. But democracy? Really? Does anyone remember what just happened in Egypt? Just how did those democratic elections finally pan out? Well, pretty much the same as I think they're going to pan out in the Ukraine today. Beware of Putin. We have warned on this show in no uncertain terms on broadcast past. We use that very heading, Beware of Putin, on two broadcasts of Just Right, which you can check out yourself on our website. Shows number 36, January 10th, 2008 six years ago, for heaven's sakes, in which I focused on former Soviet chess champion Garry Kasparov's warning to the West about the change in direction that Russia took with Putin in power. And then there was show number 71 on September 11th of 2008 when Salim Mansour joined us to discuss Putin's role in Russia's invasion of Georgia. Remember that? Few people seem to. So, beware of Putin. And just what the heck is going on in the Ukraine today? Well, we'll try to make that as clear as possible and give you our Reader's Digest summary on the other side of this break. Why'd you do that? Wasn't helping. You need to concentrate more. It doesn't matter how much I concentrate. Still starving. So am I. You sure there's nothing left? Not unless you have a hiding place I don't know about. I ate the last of the food I put away a week ago. We should have stockpiled more. We should have prepared for this. 
they'd never let us go this long without food before. Maybe they've forgotten about us. I just decided to finally let us die. Then we die. She? Wandering over there, scrounging for food. Come here, sweetie. Beside me. Here. Is that all? That's barely half a cup. They've cut everyone's rations. It's not enough. How do they expect us to survive? The Cardassians don't care whether or not we survive. They won't be happy until we're all dead. Come here, sweetie. Come here. Have some soup. Excuse me. That soup. It's ours. What are you talking about? My wife stood in line all day to get it. If you think you can just... Just... What? It's for the children. They're hungry. We are all hungry. That's right, we are. And hunger can make people do stupid things. Like what you're doing now. Cardassians are the enemy. We shouldn't be fighting amongst ourselves. We should be trying to help each other. That's what we were doing, helping ourselves to some soup. Hey, you want soup? You go stand in line like everyone else. We may have to take orders from the spoon hands, but we don't have to take them from you! Well, that's rationing for you. That's how economics in a controlled society is practiced in some form or another. If it's not blatant violence, then it's some form of force through government. And it's no different whether we're talking about the Ukraine or Canada or the U.S. To the degree that government controls some aspect of the economy, state rationing always ends up taking place. We see it in health care, we see it in energy, medical drug supplies, and of course in countries where they dared to actually control food. We see it on food. So, just what the heck is going on in Ukraine? Why is all of this happening now? What's the Reader's Digest version of the story? To answer these compelling questions, and I didn't really have a, a, a totally clear understanding of the whole situation as it has just transpired, but I waded through piles of clippings on the crisis in the Ukraine and narrowed the best two clippings of the bunch, at least that, that I've discovered so far, uh, down to the two I'll focus on today. And believe it or not, the first one was written by Gwyn Dyer, a columnist who always rubs me the wrong way, particularly on global warming issues and a few other economic issues. But on the current Ukraine crisis, his write-up, I think, summarized all of the essential facts the best. And, and, and they all con coincided with all the other things that I was reading about the situation as well. So I said, wow, this is really a good summary of all this other stuff I just <laughs> finished reading. And this was written just about a week or two before Putin moved the troops in. And it all starts with, I guess, what we would have called a democratic election, quote-unquote. Headline in the London Free Press, February 20th, by Gwyn Dyer reads, Ukraine's fate, now written in blood. And he writes, and this is a really good summary of the whole situation. Ever since President Viktor Yanukovych won the 2010 election narrowly but fairly, he's been trying to straddle the gap between Russia and the European Union. Both Moscow and Brussels have been courting Ukraine. But if he opted for either one, half of the country was going to condemn him. So there he is. He's, he's already in a, in a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation. 
Ukrainians, writes Dyer, are split almost 50-50 between those mostly Ukrainian speakers in the west of the country who want closer ties with the European Union and those mostly Russian speakers in the east and south who want stronger links with Russia. So finally, in late November, he chose Russia. He did so because Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, was offering a massive financial bailout if he joined Moscow's new, quote, Eurasian Union, end quote, and threatening to turn off the gas that keeps Ukraine's economy function, functioning if he did not. He also did it because his own voters are mostly Russian-speaking, uh, uh, Russian-speaking voters in the East. He knew there would be a backlash, but he didn't anticipate the strength and duration of the protests and the fact that they would expand beyond the simple Brussels-Moscow issue to take in the massive corruption that has flourished under his government and now his back is against the wall. And boy, I could, I could do a whole show just on the corruption of his government if you've seen a lot of those clippings and, and the palatial palaces they found this guy ha- uh, hiding out in and how the, 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 the whole treasury of the country was pretty well robbed blind. But continues Dyer, for the first two months, the protests were mostly peaceful. And you would have taken an even money bet that Yanukovych could write it out. Then he made the error of passing severe anti-protest laws. Some of the protesters started to use violence, and he began to retreat. Within a week, he was repealing his new laws and accepting the resignation of his hardline prime minister. Now, you notice that the country has both a president and a prime minister, so not to confuse the two. Then he was offering the opposition leaders places in the new cabinet. They refused, and granting amnesty to protesters who faced criminal charges. Then he proposed constitutional reforms that would reduce the power of the president, which was himself. But Tuesday, he postponed the debate on those reforms in Parliament. (laughs) I guess in Ontario we call this kind of governance, uh, you know, pulling a hudak, I don't know. And that was when the killing started, in front of the Parliament. Not on the Euromedan, the the, the main square that the protesters have held since late November. And it was between the right-wing nationalists of the Pravi sector and a pro-government crowd imported from eastern Ukraine. It might have stopped there. But Yanukovych decided to use this calamity as an excuse to clear the main square by force, although there had been no fighting there. Now, there's a a smart move for you. That was when the police announced their anti-terror operation, and the main assault began. Yanukovych now has a lot of blood on his hands. If he loses this battle, he'll end up in jail or in exile. He has run out of options. It's hard to see him staying in office unless he turns Ukraine into a full-scale police state, and it's not easy to see how he could make that stick. The opposition is probably going to win, predicts Dyer in his conclusion. Except nobody saw Putin coming, apparently. Only days after the Sochi Olympics, shades of pre-World War II, as Robert and I were talking about a couple weeks ago. Now we come to the second of the two commentaries I selected. This one I have a few mixed feelings about. It deals with the West's interpretation of what is happening in Ukraine. And on the facts, there seems to be no contradiction again with what we just heard from Gwen Dyer. And this one was written by Jackson Dughart, chair of the editorial board of the Prince Arthur Herald and ran in the National Post on February 27th. And the heading of that one was called Stumbling into an Ethnic Quagmire. And he writes, 
The argument over foreign intervention has become so radically simplified, so founded on theories and principles, and ignorant of facts, that it has lost all grasp of reality. There is no better example of this than the present calamity in Ukraine, where Western internationalists have juxtaposed their narrow conceptions of liberal democracy and human rights onto a conflict that has very little to do with either. What's really at stake here is a long history of ethnic division. The eastern and southern regions are populated by ethnic Russians who speak Russians, identify with their co-ethnics in the motherland to the east, and are Orthodox Christians by confession. The ethnic Ukrainians, in contrast, speak the Ukrainian language, identify as a distinct nationality, and adhere mostly to Ukrainian Catholicism. What's really happening today is a rerun of the Orange Revolution of 2004 to 2005. It's, it's a clash of ethnic nationalisms, not some pursuit of democracy over tyranny, he writes. Dughart then points to various atrocities committed by both sides in the past, concluding that you can morally blame the Russians all you want, but, quote, that would be incorrect, especially given the equally sordid elements on the ethnic Ukrainian side, end quote. Worth noting was Dughart's focus on how each of the sides in the conflict have been using language laws, quote, not dissimilar to the efforts of the Quebec government, end quote. One of the main objectives achieved by language laws, he writes, is to, again, quote, manipulate education policies to promote its interests. Just last weekend, the law recognizing Russian as a regional language in eastern courts was abolished, making Ukrainian the sole official language for the entire country. Under such circumstances, who could blame the ethnic Russians for seeking the protection and influence of the neighboring superstate? And finally, concludes, concludes Doug Hart, perhaps the most laughably wrong assumption, however, is that the protesters are acting democratically. Though certainly no choir boy, Mr. Anukovych came to power in an election that was judged by international observers as free and fair giving him a mandate to pursue his economic and trade policies. From exile, he is more than right to characterize his deposition as a coup d'etat. This isn't democracy, he concludes. It is mob rule, end quote. So those, are, those were basically the two best articles I found to summarize the situation, the broader general situation that's going on there. From the point of view of, uh, say, a fair election, Doug Hart's observation is perfectly fair itself. After all, why have a vote if you don't intend to abide by the result if your side happens to lose? But of course, this isn't any democracy. The power of the government does not emanate from the people. The state is still absolute in the determination of all essential things. So you can see the problem. One, you've got a nearly 50-50 ethnically divided country with each side politically opposing the other. Two, you've got a history of deep and violent divisions between the two groups. I mean, this goes back further in the 1930s and in, in the, area, the era I talked about. Conrad Black, in his February 22nd write-up on the region, went all the way back to the 14th century, for heaven's sakes. And three, you've got these two diametrically opposed cultures trying to play democracy in a nation-state where, where the state, not the people, is the source of all rights and privileges. All this can lead to is the, an eternal struggle of one group trying to rule the other. Because if freedom, capitalism, and democracy were truly in place, 
all of the nations and their citizens would be free to trade with the trading partners of their choice, and there really wouldn't be too much to vote about. So bottom line, at least as I see it so far, you know, it's hard to pick any good guys in this conflict in the sense of, of the players in the conflict. But there is still good and evil within the greater conflict itself. The one that Doug Hart rightly dismisses as a motivation for the players, but wrongly dismisses as not being what's at stake in the greater picture, in the bigger game. Because let's face it, between Brussels and Moscow, at least Brussels would have been a better choice for the people of Ukraine. But even so, that's kind of a no-win option, isn't it? Why can't they trade with both if they want? And to complicate matters even further, the people on the Brussels side of the issue have broken their supposedly democratic pact. If you lose an open and fair election, then you have to bear the consequences. Unfortunately, in a forced collective, the majority will always subjugate the minority culturally, religiously, politically, and of course, monetarily. Their means, taxes, regulations, laws, language laws, we see it going on in Quebec. The fact that there are no good guys and just sides in this immediate conflict is a consequence of choosing evil over good, nonetheless. And the only way out, in the long term, is to choose the good. Politically, that means choosing a true democracy, with freedom, with capitalism, the holy trinity of what can truly be called civilization. A civilization is a society in which the use of force is prohibited by the just force that is just and right. So don't hold your breath waiting for the Ukrainian crisis to resolve itself in any democratic fashion, because I don't think that's going to happen. We'll have to wait and see how this resolves itself. And similarly, don't hold your breath waiting for any democratic solutions here in London, Ontario's own political and financial situation, which we will briefly discuss when we return after our next break. You seem to have a very efficient operation here, Clink. Thank you, Colonel. I have worked very hard to make Starak 13 the toughest POW camp in all of Germany. And believe me, it has not been easy. My burdens have been heavy. Problems, sleepless nights, try to solve them. Nice snow job. Snow job, it's a blizzard. For me, uh, duty comes first. Uh, when I was transferred here, I was with the 410th Bomber Group. Yes, I know. Ah, here. Let me show you a picture of my own outfit. <laughs> and there we are. Uh, that's me in the middle uh, with a white scarf. Oh, <laughs> real comrades, all of you. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Ah, I was sad at the thought of being grounded. But uh, as I said, duty über alles. The Führer commands. I serve. You prefer a combat assignment, then? <clears throat> My dear Colonel, when I was with the 410th, they called me the Iron Eagle. <laughs> oh, yes. The Iron Eagle, up there in the wild blue yonder, at the control of my Heinkel, zooming through the enemy. <laughs> of course, uh, now the Iron Eagle flies at uh, somewhat lower altitudes. <laughs> I'm very glad you feel the way you do. Actually, I'm here on what you might call a recruiting mission for the Russian front. We need manpower. Watch out, Clink. He's setting you up. Professor, I should be very happy to transfer any of my men that you may need. But uh, I'm afraid they're not all a front-line quality like myself. It's not them he wants, dummy. It's you. Clam up, will you? Colonel, the Russian front needs officers, experienced leaders. I understand, sir. Ooh, how I wish I could go. 
I'd show those Ruskies a thing or two. You can go, Colonel. I've got a few tricks up my sleeve. I... I can go? <laughs> Tell me when it's over. We need you. Well, uh, frankly, my flying tricks are a little out of date. <laughs> They'll soon brief you in the newer techniques. Now, a flight surgeon will be sent here next week to give you your physical examination. <clears throat> I have been too well lately. If you pass and you're fit, off you go. Uh, uh, <laughs> doctor, I hope that there is nothing wrong with my throat. I mean, whatever it is, you must pass me. I've got to fly again. Yep, they used to call the colonel the Iron Eagle. How <laughs> uh, so? Well, some of his feathers have gotten a little rusty. Good! I mean, it's good to be up there in the wild blue yonder. Hey, Colonel, you are in terrible physical condition. Oh, that is awful. You know, I had my heart so set on flying. However, you have passed the one important test for a combat assignment to the Russian front. I have? Yeah, you are breathing. Zane. <laughs> Not today, thank you. <laughs> now that is exactly the sort of outdated authoritarian attitude that we're fighting against. We must fight apathy, freedom. Students, unite and act now. Come on, rouse yourselves in there, get moving. Wake up, it's time for action. Rise up, rise up, all of you. Action, 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 action. Now, the visual punchline that we can't see at the end of that scene that we just heard is that as they're standing there screaming action, saying, rattles yourself up there, a lone security guard comes out in front of the building and closes the door. And the sign on the door reads, Mortuary. <laughs> so there they are in front of the mortuary, telling everybody to get up and rise up and, and protest, because it's a medical school. And, you know, that's just one way of expressing the modern democratic deficit that we saw not only in Ukraine, but also right here at home. Sometimes I wonder if democracy's mortuary resides more in the halls of our various legislatures or out in the streets with the people, because there is a tremendous, what I call, democratic deficit in the sense of people's understanding of how democracy voting and, and elections work, despite all the efforts out there trying to teach people to get involved. 
In this regard, two recent articles, one in the Free Press, the other from the London Community News, spoke to what I think is a slightly, it depends on what your goal is, of course, but in terms of democracy and getting involved, I think it would be more of a misguided attempt to gain some kind of input to local government in ways that I, I just don't see as being very realistic. Building tools for the pops and politics crowd, reads the headline of the February 27th London Community News article by Sean Meyer. It talks about municipolitics, a program intended to, quote, lead to greater civic engagement by local high school students, end quote. Says Jake Sutton, one of the organizers behind municipolitics, quote, we want to maybe do something like have a general discussion lined up, facilitate some networking on, in the beginning, have a really interesting discussion, end quote, all intended in the end to, quote, provide young people with the tools they need to become confident in the political landscape, end quote. I think that young people have a lot of things to say, and they are heavily influenced by decisions that are often made without their views or their opinions, Brighton McKinnon, a second organizer of the project, added. Sutton and McKinnon say that, quote, two big keys for municipolitics include opening up adults to the perspectives of London youth, but also convincing young people that their point of view is important. In the second article by Randy Richmond in February 26, London Free Press, headlined Answers and Questions, he writes, quote, Here's a thought for city politicians. How about creating a full-time citizen engagement job so that people can connect all year long? Those are among the recommendations coming out at London X, a conference run by Emerging Leaders, a nonprofit group representing 20 to 44-year-olds that aims to attract and keep young workers, entrepreneurs, artists, and creative thinkers in London. Among their five recommendations highlighted in the feature was, one, a call to change expectations of employers for entry-level work. Employers shouldn't insist on three to five years' experience and should hire kids straight out of high school, they say. Two, exercise responsibility towards the city by, quote, doing anything, from working and being engaged on your block to running for office. Three, the city should hire a citizen engagement person whose sole job is to keep in touch with Londoners by social media, meetings, and other methods. Four, the city should develop a municipal high-speed fiber optic internet service. And five, the city should have more bike lanes and more, quote, alternative transportation and transit. Reports Richmond, some of the suggestions will support city efforts such as the Rethink London exercise, which is another exercise in opinion gathering, such as these are, and the new transportation master plan, while others will be a little different than expected, said Sean Quigley, executive director of Emerging Leaders. The recommendations will be shared with local politicians and groups with a refined list developed by next year, end quote. Now, what's common to all of these notions of government and governance and what the city government should do is this consistently misguided belief that with greater participation and greater numbers in the process of suggesting an endless stream of disparate and contradictory spending programs and policies, somehow our governance will get better. The more we all talk with each other, the better our city will be. It's interesting to note recently that when Rob Ford just recently appeared on the Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel show south of the border, he pointed out that the city of Los Angeles is much larger than Toronto, 
yet the city has a municipal council one-third the size. Amazingly, Ford correctly noted that any group larger than even nine or so people becomes almost ungovernable and unmanageable because of the increasing number of competing interests and policy and program proposals. It all devolves into this huge shouting match the more and more voices you have added into the input. And so that's almost a flaw in democracy if you think of democracy as being majority rule. And that's the new democracy. That's what the new Democrats mean by democracy, is majority rule. And so majority rule is not democracy. We've said that many times on this show. Majority rule is just a way of voting, and it's done in non-democratic countries. Even, you know, even if there's only one party to vote for, you still go out and you vote for that party. So you know, the big issue is, I guess certain fundamental questions have to be asked before you even approach the issue of voting and governance. And, and one of them is, well, you know, why politics? Why do we have to have politics in the first place and the types of governments we do? Well, I don't look at government as a necessary evil. I see government as not only a necessity but a good. It's, it's not a necessary evil. But the problem is, that people use government for non-governmental reasons, and mostly that's socialism. Socialism is not governance. It is the absence of governance. Socialism is really little more than criminality without the legal consequences, because it is carried out by government, which should be in the role of a judge of criminality and prohibiting the use of coercion and force in all aspects of human relationships. But not, not so in economics. The society that prohibits the use of force from individual relationships is called a free society, meaning free from coercion. That's what we mean when we say a free society. To the degree that somebody's forcing you to buy from him or buy from someone else or, or, or do something against your will that's not a criminal act in and of itself, that's coercion. That's what the government's supposed to prevent, not institute. And, of course, a society, the economic corollary of a free society, a society free of coercion, is known as capitalism. That's the only economic system on this planet based on consent and which prohibits coercion. And that's why it's the secret to the answer to everything. And then, of course, you have political parties. All these people getting together in all these various groups trying to have their voices heard, that's not going to help. You have to, political party, that has a very definitive purpose, function, and form. I've talked about that before. I actually believe it's the only way to truly participate in the democratic process beyond voting. Because voting, all you do is you get your one, two, three, or four choices, and that's your choice. You haven't really input to anything. You just get to pick from the given choices. But those choices are being created by the political parties, by the people who choose to join them, start them, whatever. Political parties also protect voters from errant candidates through the protection of their reputation. It creates party discipline. It creates a focus on the greater issues that are more common to the greater, to the greater good, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. And, you know, even on the level of representation, certainly on the, on the municipal level, our, our uh, councillors are representatives. But in law, believe it or not, our MPs and MPPs are not representatives. They have no obligation to the public as such. They are members of parliament. And in that role, 
I guess you could almost call them effectively dictators, although because they're not under any obligation to re represent any particular citizen or group of citizens, which actually is a protection for those citizens, believe it or not, because they're going to pick one side or the other. Just like we see, you know, in Ukraine, the government's going to pick one side or the other, and then the other side loses. Why should any side have to lose? And then there's the issue of voting itself, how most people vote. I jokingly say, you know, the average person who votes is hammered and wasted. Because, you know, what, he's using his vote as a hammer to, to vote for the second largest party just to get the party out that he doesn't like in there. That's, that, we call those people hammerheads in, in voting. And it's a wasted vote, and that's why I call it hammered and wasted. Voting is not proof of any democratic involvement. In fact, most people who vote are totally ignorant of what they're voting for because they're always voting against something. They know, they know about that. They know what they're against. But they really don't know what they're for, and they never realize that they're always voting for the same thing they're voting against. You especially see this with conservatives voting for conservatives, thinking that by voting conservative they'll get rid of the liberal, when they're just voting another liberal in with the same policies. So, you know, there's just some of the things. Voting is a very passive thing. Whether an eligible voter votes or not, he's exercised his right to vote, even in not doing so. And the other thing about voters, it's like a disconnect from being responsible for your actions. It, they almost get sociopathic. No one seems to care about how state policies that are desirable in one dimension may affect people and opportunities that were not intended to be affected by the policy. They could be hurt greatly. And then, of course, there's the issue of what do political parties in general represent. And, you know, I basically see conservatives, progressive conservatives, uh, a, a party of, of uh, supposedly representing business, which is an interest group. Uh, the New Democratic Party supposedly represents unions and labor, which is an interest group. And both are, by the way, the one ends up being against business and the other one ends up being against labor. And liberals, of course, are the party of the state. There, is, there has not been really a party of the people which represents individual rights until Freedom Party came along, as far as I've seen. And you've got a lot of single-issue interest parties, too, that aren't really even political parties in the broader sense, and I include there the Green and the Libertarian. They've got these single issues, environment, anti-government, anarchist. That's not governance. So, you know, most people don't have the time to get involved in politics. That's why we have political parties. That's a way for them to delegate their political views to a representative of those views. So, you know, so-called direct democracy isn't. Democracy, <laughs> that is. It's mob rule generally designed to avoid politics and political parties and democracy itself. That's all I have to say on that today. And coming up next, on the other side of this break, we're going to get into some creative debating on creation. Sam is irreplaceable. You are not. I want you to find that chimp. Oh, I will, General, I will. And I think I know just where to look. I said to myself, if I were a chimpanzee, where would I go? And what did you decide? I'd go to where Major Nelson is. After all, Major Nelson has worked very closely with Sam. Yeah, you're, you're around here, aren't you? <laughs> where, where, where are you from? The Cameroons, Equatorial, West Africa. That's where I was born and raised as a kid. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. And then my, my whole family got captured. Captured? <laughs> um, is that going to take you long? Uh... Sam. Sam, you're gonna you're gonna be able to uh, put that back together, aren't you? Excuse me, please. 
Hello, Major Nelson here. Oh, hello, Dr. Bellows. <laughs> huh? Just... You, you, uh, you think Sam's escaped? <laughs> oh, oh, uh, yeah. Yes, sir. Of course, we'll keep our eyes open for him. Right, sir. Yeah. Hey, uh, Dr. Bellows is on his way over here. He thinks Sam is coming. <laughs> Don't let him get me. I want to stay here with you. <laughs> Would you get off, huh? I don't want to go back in a cage. Get off. Nobody's going to put you back in a cage. What's the matter with you, Sam? Sam. That's Sam. I know it's Sam. Sam, it can't be Sam. <laughs> As yes, it can be. Don't let him take me. He treated me like a monkey. <laughs> but, Sam, you are a monkey. <laughs> Who are you calling a monkey? Uh, Sam, I'm sorry about this, but you're just going to have to become a chimpanzee again. You want to be a chimpanzee? Be a chimpanzee. I'm staying a man. Uh, Sam, this whole thing is a mistake. Uh, 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 you see, what I've been trying to say is that, uh, according to Darwin, it's going to be several thousand years before you reach our level of development. Uh, oh, Sam, you'd be, you'd be much happier as a chimp. Oh, yeah? Have you ever seen a chimp driving around in a convertible with a blonde? <laughs> I've got a mate you wouldn't believe. Big, hairy. <laughs> He's coming. I smell Smell who? Hey, wait a minute. Don't go up there. Free will, Your Honor. The spring from which human conscience flows. That intangible force that allowed a mere foot soldier in Vietnam to stop the killings of my lie. That allowed King Christian of Denmark to defy the Nazis and wear a Jewish star. A two-edged sword leaving the pure of heart without guilt and the heavy of heart without excuse. For without free will, there can be no conscience, and without conscience, no law, no order, and certainly no justice. Interesting. That seems to be at the heart of a lot of the issues that, that affect people of both religious beliefs and non-religious beliefs, but many people believe that our values come from those beliefs, and critical to that whole belief structure is is the belief in creationism. And you always hear the debate between creationism and evolution, which I don't think is a, an even valid debate. But I ran into a little bit of creative debating on creationism about a week ago on AM 980's Andrew Lawton show, where he had on a guest who was actually an official creationist. And though I was disappointed in the lack of what was actually a debate, I finally got a clear, unambiguous, affirming confirmation from a believer in creationism on a philosophical point I've made many times on this show in the past whenever the issue of creationism versus evolution came up. The last time was when we discussed Ann Coulter's latest book, in which she outrightly rejected the very notion of evolution. Now, Andrew Lawton and I get along great and even support each other on a whole pile of issues. I mean, he's been on this show, I've been on his show, we've supported each other, I was at his Master Chef event, he gave a great speech at Freedom Party's last dinner event. And most fundamentally, I think Andrew and I both reject moral relativism, despite our very different points of view on religious matters. 
So given his religious views, one issue Andrew and I would obviously not very, very much agree on is the issue of the existence of a literal deity, God. But I reject the term atheist in describing myself because that's just a word believers use to distinguish themselves from non-believers. Talked about that many times on the show in the past. It's perfectly fair for a person of faith to describe himself by that faith, be it Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Muslim, because that's what he is. That's by choice and conviction. But for me to describe myself as an atheist is is to define myself by something that I'm not meaning I'm not a believer in whatever the particular belief in question is. But I'm no atheist in the sense of rejecting the role that some people ascribe to faith and religion in their lives and in our history. Nor do I reject the basic sense of what's been called Judeo-Christian values, which many believe to have been the source of our rights and freedoms here today, in Canada and most of the Western world. There's a lot of truth to that, though not for the reasons usually attributed. If I were to objectively define God, the only definition I know that fits the general broad description of God is God is a supreme being. But I've never interpreted this, this, this definition to have a literal meaning, as it so clearly does in the minds of so many. For me, the definition can only be real if it is symbolic, allegorical, or representative in a personified sense of existence itself. Existence is the literal supreme being as opposed to non-being, as opposed to non-existence, which is the anti-concept central to to my thoughts today. Existence exists. Like God, it has no beginning, no end, and is everywhere at once, and is axiomatic to everything, particularly to our knowledge of existence. All actions and reactions in the universe are determined not by a conscious personified God, but by the properties of that which exists, be it matter, energy, or any other existence we may yet discover, and upon the laws of cause and effect with regards to both the actions of physical, inanimate existence and of human behavior, two different things. It is our knowledge of these realities that is the source of morality and of moral behavior. And that's why when Adam tasted the fruit of the tree of knowledge, he was cast out of Eden, where mankind had been previously existing as animals, ignorant of the knowledge or ability necessary to determine their own destinies and choice. Free will. Was this an act of creation or one of evolution? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, says a famous quote from one of the Gospels. Allegorically, this is not about the beginning of existence or creation, but about the beginning of conceptualization in the human species. The Word, ideas, concepts, the ability to reason and choose, choice and choose and being an option only in the light of knowledge. You can't choose something that you don't know about. That's one of the lessons I learned from Scottish philosopher John McMurray. But, like so many people of various faiths, Andrew nevertheless expressed extraordinarily objective viewpoints and assessments on social issues, political issues, and then he goes and pulls an Ann Coulter on the whole issue of evolution who's also been a guest on this show, by the way, rejecting it outright. Uh, just no, no such thing as evolution. It's all bunk, he says. So he had a fellow named Calvin Smith of the Creation Ministries International, who apparently has a branch near the 401, who was on his show, calling himself a creation scientist, I think is a contradiction in terms, yet Lawson and Smith carried on a discussion about scientific facts that support creation and then simultaneously argued that both sides of the debate are religion versus religion, using science to bolster their ideas. 
I come from a faith position. I'm a biblical creationist. I presuppose scriptures as God's words. That's my starting point, says Mr. Smith. Yet he was there to have a debate on a position he just declared was unmovable and and based on faith. Why pretend to have a debate on an issue when your starting and ending point is not to accept any contradictory evidence or viewpoints to your presupposed premise? You know, so I called in to test a theory. I phoned in and expressed my view that creation and evolution arguments have nothing to do with each other. Even if creation existed, that wouldn't negate the reality of evolution. And even if evolution were not a fact, that wouldn't prove very much about creation. In order to believe in creationism, I suggested, you have to believe in nothing. A literal nothing. A non-existence. You have to be able to believe that out of non-existence, existence can come. No science, no philosophy, no math, no logic supports this idea. Existence has always existed. And you can get into this in very detailed situation. So, unfortunately, I was immediately cut off after expressing this viewpoint and never did get a chance to respond to his argument. And he just basically said, either the universe created itself or it didn't. If the universe created itself, then evolution is true. If it didn't create itself, then there's a creator. Well, that's circular logic. And, of course, the question of who or what created the creator is a dead-end question that's never asked or answered. Creationists seem to find it easier to believe in a sentient, intelligent, eternal existence, but not in existence itself. And in responding to my assertion that to believe in creation you had to believe in nothing, Smith replied, that's true. Well, there you go. That's what I've been trying to say for years. And to make, make, make more sense, to me it makes more sense that God the creator with a mind could create things than matter with no mind could create things, he said. And in so saying, he also made it clear that he missed my whole point. I never implied that matter could create anything. My point was that there was no creation in the sense that he wants to believe. There never was this state of non-existence. Ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if it was, wouldn't that be something? We've said that before. In fact, even though Smith said he does believe in non-existence as a prerequisite to creation, the rest of his statement denied it because he believed in God. Obviously, God existed, right? He existed before existence. So the contradictions are so profound as to make any supposed scientific discussion nothing but absurdity. And then, of course, the final nail in the coffin was that this was supposed to be a debate, and you just can't debate these kinds of issues. You can't expect a biologist or an earth science scientist to come out and debate this because it, it's got nothing to do with creationism. I mean, why not ask a car mechanic to come and do it? So there's nothing reasonable about creationism. It's unidentifiable. It's axiomatic. It's just like existence. And another thing that's axiomatic is the fact we've only got an hour to do the show each week and our time's up today. So once again, we leave you with our invitation to join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then... Be right, stay right, do right, act right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Oh, how you doing, buddy boy? I know just how you feel. I'm up to here with them bananas myself. Hey, you know this evolution you was telling me about? I kind of like it. <laughs>